I was uh, I was very shocked that uh, our lesson text or, or our lesson for Sunday school uh, centered around the relationship between the law and the gospel, and because that's what I had this morning, <laughs> and so uh, I, I, I had to kind of chuckle a little bit to myself because I purposefully. Uh, not being the teacher of the adult Sunday school class, I, I purposefully do not look at it um, because I do not want it to influence what I preach. Uh, and whenever that happens, I always get a kick out of it. And uh, not that not that it should be some some fantastical thing, but just the way the Lord works in in the directing of the thoughts. Uh, it just never ceases to amaze me. And so I'd like to take for a, a topic this morning, the law of liberty. The law of liberty. And I want to use for a scripture reading this morning two verses. The first verse is going to come out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17. And this verse was used this week during our revival. Now, the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. And in James chapter 2, verse 12, is the other verse that I would like to use this morning. James chapter 2, verse 12. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. And that's where I want to take my uh, my scripture text. Now we're going to pretty well be staying in 2 Corinthians uh, for, for the majority of the sermon this morning. But as we look here in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is one of, if not the most personal letter that Paul wrote during the course of his ministry. And Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians in a large part, though not in totality, I believe, but in large measure, Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians as a defense of himself. And we can we hear that statement that the Apostle Paul had to write a letter to the church at Corinth in defense of himself, of his apostleship, and also, by proxy, his ministry. And also the authority by which he did what he did. And you say, well, where do you get that kind of a thinking that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who we on this side generally regard as the greatest of the apostles, given the work that he did, uh, all the travel that he was engaged in, and the fact that he wrote most of the New Testament. Um, But you're not putting yourself in the mindset of the people of the day, and especially given the context of the background of the people of the day. They didn't like being reprimanded, did they? And Paul had written a letter previously that had really reprimanded them. And, and so in the, in the very first verse of the third chapter of the Corinthian, of, of Second Corinthians, um, Paul writes out, starts out saying, Do we again... 
Or do we begin again to commend ourselves? And what he's saying there is, do I need to introduce ourselves? Do we need to introduce ourselves to you again? Do you not know who we are? And he goes on and he says, or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Now that's that's what we usually give if somebody that's a member here unites with another church of like faith and order. We will grant a letter of commendation, isn't it? And that's what it. That's all it really is, uh, a letter of commendation that they are a member here and that they are in good standing and that they are uh, and that they're free to be received as a member of that church and that we have released them from being a member of this church. And so Paul's saying, do we need letters of commendation again? Uh, you know, in, in other words, you know, do you need to have it proved to us who we are? Uh, and, and he goes on here in the second verse of that, and he says, you are, ye, are, ye are our epistle written in our hearts and known and read of all men. And so he's, he's touching on something that he wrote back in the, the first letter, and that's in chapter 9, and you don't have to flip over there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in the first two verses, Paul wrote this, and he said, Am I not an apostle? He said, Am I not free? Have, not, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? And then he says in the next verse, he says, If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal, and that word that is trans, that's, trans, uh, that's translated there as seal can also be looked at as a certificate, right? And so when you buy something, uh, you'll get uh, of worth, uh, oftentimes you'll get a certificate of authenticity, won't you? And so Paul says here, he says, for the seal of my apostleship or the certificate of authenticity of my apostleship, are you in the Lord or are ye in the Lord? And so he's writing to the church there at Corinthians and he says, you are the certificate of the my apostleship and of the authority of it. And uh, and so we look at that, and, uh, and, and Paul is going to get into this, this great expounding in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 of this relationship that the gospel of Jesus Christ has with the law of Moses. And he, he's going to dive headlong into it. But now we know this, we know this for a fact, uh, that this law of liberty that we've been granted, uh, Romans, uh, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse uh, 12, he wrote this, he said, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And then he says, And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And then he says, for the hearers of the law are just, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For the, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law of God written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing 
one another. And so we see there that uh, that he's writing about this relationship that they have to the law. And he says, those that are without the law, they will die without the law. Those that are those that have the law, which would have been only the Jews, he says they will uh, they will be judged by the law. Now remember what James says. He says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now that's a different law, isn't it? And, and James is writing to, uh, to Christians here, uh, and, and he's talking about what they will be judged, but he points to the, he points to the law, or, or the law of Moses, and uses examples from the law of Moses to show that exact same thing that Paul wrote about, where he says that those that have the law will be judged by the law, and then James says, but we shall be judged by the law of liberty. Now, first and foremost, uh, nobody will be stand before God and be without and be with and have an excuse. Um, you look at this and you say, "Well, those that uh, those that have not the law perish without the law." Uh, well, he says in uh, Romans chapter one verse twenty, "For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world uh, are clearly seen, uh, being understood by the things that are made." Uh, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation testifies of God, doesn't it? You, you, you cannot stand before God having witnessed creation, having your sight, and make the rational determination that there is no God. Now that's what the secularists try to get you to believe nowadays. That everything happened by accident. <laughs> that all the conditions were ripe, and there was this explosion of creation, uh, and everything happened by happenstance. Now, that takes a lot more faith than to believe that there was a God who created everything with an order and a purpose and laid out that order and purpose for his creation. If that's the case, it's amazing that anything remains as it was, doesn't it? Or isn't it? Shouldn't it all continue to evolve to a point to where it can look back and say, well, that's what I was and this is what I am now. We should, we should see this play out still. And there are people that will say, well, that still happens. Minor little mutations are not the same thing as the, a new creature. <laughs> It's not the same thing. And so we look at this relationship, and we're going to get into this, what Paul's talking about here. And we're going to look at this from the, from the standpoint of an exposition of this third chapter of, the, of 2 Corinthians. In the sixth verse of this chapter, Paul writes this, Who hath also, or, or who also hath made us able... Uh, able ministers of the New Testament, talking about Jesus Christ. And uh, if we go back here and we'll look uh, and, uh, and, and in this third chapter of uh, 2 Corinthians. Get back over there. But, uh, but writing here, and he's talking about his sufficiency being of God. God calls us and God is the one who qualifies us for the, for the office that he would have us to hold. 
And so here he says, who hath made us, speaking of God, who hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now that verse right there that says not of the letter, uh, that is a verse of Scripture that is speaking of the law because that's how they had gotten to where they were keeping the law, weren't they? They were keeping the law by the letter of the law, not by the spirit of the law. Because we know that the law is spiritual, but Paul wrote and said, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And, uh, and so we look at this uh, relationship of the letter of the law. And, uh, and look at how he, uh, he refers to the law. And we're going to touch on this letter here. Because there's those that would endeavor to keep the law. Well, James wrote in that same, in that same chapter, in the 10th chapter, he said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and offend in one point, he is guilty of all. These, in other words, if, you're, if it is your goal to keep the law, uh, that when you look at the way their language is written, if you intend in one point, in one little swipe of how a word is written, uh, in one little, min- in the minutest detail of the law, you're not guilty of part of the law, you're guilty of all of the law. And as such, you're guilty of what the law brings. And now that's what Paul's going to talk about here in 2 Corinthians. Uh, if we look here in this letter, in the 7th and the ninth verse of the 3rd chapter of 2 Corinthians, listen to what uh, how Paul refers to the law. He refer- First off, in the 7th verse, he says, But if the ministration of death, Let me rephrase that. If the ministry of death, he's referring to the law. In the ninth verse, he says it this way, for if the ministration of condemnation. Now, let's let's look at that in the same way. For if the ministry of condemnation. And so in these two verses alone, he's saying the purpose of the law is to condemn and to punish, isn't it? And that's what every law is written for, isn't it? The law punishes the lawbreaker. Uh, that's who laws are written for. And God wrote the law for the lawless, not for the righteous. And so we look at this uh, in this, uh, we, we continue on and we continue examining this. And so we're, we'll come back to those two verses in just a minute. But Paul, in the, uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, he wrote this as it pertains to what, you know, his motivation. Uh, his motivation is to preach the gospel, uh, which is at deference with the law, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's at odds with the law, and we can see that at odds showing up here. So let's go back to that 7th and ninth verse. He says, for the ministration of death, or but if the ministration of death, meaning the law, written and engraven in stones. See, he's only talking about the law because God gave the law to Moses written in two tablets of stone on the top of Mount Sinai so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was done away, was to be done away. Uh, and so we look there, uh, and he says this, and he asks this question in the 8th verse. He says, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit? Now, let's, 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 let's get into this here. The ministration of the Spirit. Now, the word there is pneuma. 
and and you'll see that capitalized in some other uh, in other translations. But what he's talking about here is he's referring to the glory of the law, and then he asks this question in the eighth verse: But how shall not the ministry of the Spirit be rather glorious? Let's rephrase that. How shall not the ministry of the Spirit be more glorious than what? Than the ministry of death and condemnation. Now, that's an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? The ministry of the Spirit. Now let's look at it in this light. How about this? The ministry of the law of death and the ministry of the law of condemnation Versus the ministry of the gospel of the Spirit of God, or the gospel of Jesus Christ, is more glorious. And so we look at that relationship there between the law and the gospel. And that's what Paul is really clarifying here, is that the gospel and the things that are taught and espoused in the gospel are more glorious. That where sin doth abound, and that's the purpose of the law, is to point out sin, that grace does much more abound, and grace is a work work that's performed by the Holy Spirit of God in the hearts of those that are lost, uh, regenerating them. And that's how we're born again by the renewing, uh, by the renewing, and and uh, uh, of our. Uh, oh, I, let me go over to Titus and, and uh, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, 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 my my brain, uh, uh, my uh, my brain just uh, betrayed me there for a moment. But uh, we know which verse we're talking about, and uh, and so we look here, and we see this 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 relationship being made. In verse 10 he says, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. For that which was done away was glorious, and much more that which remaineth is glorious. In other words, the glory of the gospel exceeds the glory of the law. And that's what we see at the Mount of Transfiguration is the glory of the gospel or the giver of the gospel exceeding the glory of the giver of the law being Moses, isn't it? And Jesus shined and radiated before Moses and Elijah. Uh, and, uh, and so we look here and we think about this relationship and he's going to talk about Moses and the relationship that Moses had with the law after he was up on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel after they had come down. And now if you're here today and you're lost, this is what I want you to pay attention to. Because a lot of this has been uh, for the, those of us that are saved. Uh, that the appreciation that we have for the, for the gospel of Christ would be uh, expounded. Uh, because we have a tendency to look back at the law and the things that happened with the giving of the law and be in awe. But the things that happened with the giving of the gospel were greater than the things that happened with the givings of the law. Because God manifested himself in 
in the flesh and God reconciled man unto himself by hanging on the cross of Calvary and sacrificed himself and poured out his own life's blood that we might have the opportunity to be saved. And the work that was done at Calvary supersedes what was done at Sinai because what was done at Sinai was to point out the offense and what was done at Calvary was to provide a remedy for the offense, wasn't it? And so I would much rather boast in the remedy than to boast in the sickness. And if you're here today and you're lost, you need to be cured of a sickness, don't you? And that sickness is sin. Uh, and so here uh, we look at, uh, at this relationship. Uh, and Paul goes into uh, to great detail here. And he talks about the, the children of Israel. Uh, and he says, And seeing then that we have such hope that we use great plainness of speech, meaning the glory of the gospel is so much greater and provides so much more hope in the forgiving of sins that we can use, that we can be very bold and very plain in our speech toward you. Uh, and not as Moses. Uh, and he's going to use the plainness of speech that he has uh, and, uh, and the boldness that he has. Uh, it juxtapose that with Moses when he came down off the mount. Uh, and when Moses came down off the mount with, two ta- with the two tables of uh, the law, it says that he put a veil over his face and that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which was abolished. And he says, but their minds were blinded. And, and if the, our gospel be hid, it is hidden to them who were lost because the God of this world hath, hath hidden it from them, hadn't he? And so that's what you have to come to understand this morning is that Satan's whole point of being is so that you would remain ignorant of God and ignorant of the scriptures and ignorant of the work that Christ did at Calvary so that he will drag down as much collateral damage as possible because that's what he's about. That's all he's about. He knows he's judged. He knows what his fate is and he wants to take as many down with him as possible. There are religions that look at Satan as being the one who should really be exalted and that God is the one who is evil and those are just teaching a damnable heresy in my opinion. Uh, They teach that good is uh, evil and evil is good uh, but we know that God is good and tempteth no man but Satan uh, walks like a lion up and down to and fro in the earth seeking who he may devour and that's his whole modus and operandi isn't it? When Jesus was in the earth Uh, uh, he went to him and the Holy Spirit had drawn Jesus away after his baptism and he was there in the wilderness tempted by Satan 40 days and 40 nights and when Jesus had withstood him that whole time he threw the last three things he had at him didn't he? And the things he threw at him weren't even his to give away because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills And all of creation is in his hand. And so Paul says here that their minds were blinded. And he says their minds are blinded till this day. He says for until this day remaineth the same veil 
That same veil that Moses hid his face with. Why is that? Because Moses, having been in the presence of God, shone. And his, his skin just shone because he'd been in the presence of God. Now, this is why, now I would not be dogmatic on this, but this is why uh, I look at the resurrection of Lazarus and I say when Lazarus came out of that tomb, I don't think he shone the way Moses did, but I believe that his skin was very supple and fresh. I don't believe he was some walking dead zombie coming out of the tomb. I believe when Jesus stood before that tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, he came forth, didn't he? Not as a dead man walking, but as somebody miraculously resurrected at the commandment of God. See, he didn't ask Lazarus if he wanted to come forth, did he? He said, Lazarus, come forth. Forth. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back again and he's going to say, come forth, and all that are in the graves that are his are going to come forth first, aren't they? And then they that remain will come forth next <laughs> and they'll be caught up in the air and they'll be taken out of this world and then judgment will be poured out without mixture, won't it? Peter said that the earth, that the elements will melt with a fervent heat. That's just, a, that's just too terrible of a fate to really kind of contemplate, but we have to. And so this veil that was, was put over Moses' face, it wasn't for Moses, it was for those who had not believed, hadn't they? And if you're here today and you've never believed in the only begotten Son of God, the peril that you stand in is that if something were to happen to you when you left here today, then, uh, and you were to meet, uh, and you were to meet your Maker, you were to meet God the Father, you were to meet Jesus Christ, uh, you were there uh, in, in His presence, and you did not know Him uh, in the free pardon forgiveness of sin, it will be too late at that point. The Catholics have a doctrine where they teach that you go into purgatory and that they can pray you out of purgatory into heaven. My friend, that no such thing as in the Bible. Uh, you die, uh, it is once appointed unto man to die, and then after this the judgment, as it says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, and so here uh, he's writing and he says, but even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. I think Jesus stood up and when he read from uh, the book of Isaiah, I don't think they had any clue what he was talking about when he said, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, and so I don't think they had any idea of what he was talking about. I think they were mesmerized by him. I think they were they looked at him as somebody who taught as somebody having authority. They they, they, he didn't teach like somebody who was just taught something, and they were trying to to, to re uh, to, you know to, to reiterate it. Uh, and he taught as somebody who was the author, didn't he? <laughs> and he is the author. He's the author, and he's the finisher, isn't he? He started it. He's going to finish it of our faith. But he says, nevertheless, now if you're here today and you're lost, that veil that Moses hung over his, his face, that was there for the unbelievers, wasn't it? 
And if you're here today and you're lost, that's the sin. You want to talk about the sin that will send you to hell? The sin of unbelief is the unforgivable sin, isn't it? There will be no forgiveness found if you die and you have never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. There's nothing left but judgment. And Jesus came so that you wouldn't have to experience the death associated with the judgment. Nevertheless, it shall turn to the Lord. What is that? If you're here today and you're lost, you better you better let your heart soften its position toward the Lord and let it turn toward the Lord so that the veil can be taken away. Now, like I said, he's doing a juxtaposition between the gospel and the law here, isn't he? And James said that we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. And then the next verse is our lesson text. Now the, now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Let me rephrase that. Where the gospel is preached, aided by the Holy Spirit, there is liberty. That's what we need, isn't it? The gospel to be preached. And when the gospel is, is aided by the Holy Spirit, there is liberty. Not only the liberty that we're thinking of, uh, but let's look in, uh, here in just a minute and we're going to finish up. But in Galatians chapter 4, uh, we read about the 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 bondage, uh, and so even so, when we were the when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. Uh, this is Galatians chapter four, verses three through five. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Aren't you glad today to be a child of God if you're saved? Amen? I thought I would have gotten an amen on that. But then he comes back and he asks the Galatians. He says, but now, after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and the beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire to be in bondage? And what he's talking about there is, why is it after that you know God and are known of God that you seek to be under the yoke of the law? <laughs> because the gospel is the law of liberty to the captives held in bondage in this world. Jesus is the giver of the gospel, isn't it? It's His Word. 
And so many today want to look at the gospel and the law and they want to mix the two together and say they're the same thing. They're not the same thing. One's greater than the other one. The gospel supersedes the law because the gospel provides a remedy for sin. Today in our society, there's a whole group of people and they want to look back on the sins of the past and they want to condemn those of the present for the sins of the past. But even the Bible... The Bible says that the sins of the fathers are not visited upon the sons. Uh, but uh, here, uh, Paul goes on and he says that don't look back to the law that condemned you to death. Look to the gospel which provided mercy and forgiveness and provided life. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 8 He says, there is therefore now no condemnation. (laughs) Aren't you thankful for this? There's no condemnation, none whatsoever, to uh, uh, to them which are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There is nothing to look forward to as it pertains to the judgment and think, oh goodness, I might not make it. You are in. <laughs> to put it in a, to put it bluntly, you're in. Why is that? Not because of something that you did, but because of what Jesus did. If you're here today and you're not saved and you're still blinded by the veil, uh, you better get that fixed. Because if that changes for you, you'll find out very quickly, just like the rich man, I'm not in Abraham's bosom. But there is no more condemnation. But what does Jesus say? Come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden. The yoke of the law is heavy, isn't it? The yoke of the law is heavy. Listen to what he says. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let me tell you something. Life in this world can be summed up in one word, in my experience, and that is wearisome. It can be very wearisome. It can be very hard to continue on in this world not having anything that's sure because there's nothing in this world that's sure. If you don't believe that, why don't you go and ask those that were running the country of Sri Lanka about a week ago. And a lot of the nobility, and when I say the nobility, I'm going to talk about the upper class of that country uh, when when that country collapsed recently, the people revolted against them, and they didn't care what your relationship was to the government. If you were of wealth, they held you responsible. And why is that? Because even the Bible says, the rich ruleth over the poor. And the borrower is always the servant. To the lender. That's the rest of that verse. But Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. The gospel is very easy and light, isn't it? It doesn't have those rigorous requirements that are demanded by the law. I am meek and lowly. I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the gospel right there. And it begins with Jesus saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Jesus died and hung on the cross of Calvary so that you might receive the forgiveness of sins, that your sins might be remitted, that your relationship with God would be restored, that it would be reconciled, and that your sins and iniquities would be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and washed away, made whiter than snow for eternity. Because if you've believed on Him, you have acquired what the world today seeks after in a physical sense, and that's everlasting life. Everlasting life. That's our message this morning. Brother Williams, if you've got a song.